Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, and uh, you know, he says to them in verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. You go down to verse 8. He says, this is what will happen. You shall receive power when the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so we said last week that we have received as the church a mandate from God. Now the foreign policy of heaven is clearly stated. The Bible says that he will that all will come to repentance. Everybody will be saved. It says whosoever, wherever, believing in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. We read the scripture that says there is no other name given under the earth, under the heavens, you know, through which men will be saved. And we said when countries typically have a foreign policy that is articulated, but they would then send ambassadors to different countries. And we read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Bible says that we are, as it were, ambassadors for God. And asking people to be reconciled back unto God. Um, I don't remember everything about last week's message. That's not very good, is it? But I can remember all these things I, I said. And we talked about, yes, I remember this one. We talked about how the, the, the mandate that we have received is top urgent, is top important. Uh, we talked about how, you know, quoting out of Romans chapter 1, that Paul says the power of God unto salvation. Okay? I remember saying how um, I believe that the purpose of life for a Christian is very tied to the preaching and the teaching of our Lord, of the gospel. But it's, you, you, you must escape. If there's one thing I would like to do this year, by God's grace, is to make sure that everyone who comes to life point is firmly at peace with the purpose that God has called them to achieve in life. But you're not under this frustration that comes in this generation because you're trying to figure out what should my life be. You know, because they, they, it's clear your purpose is not far from you. Um, I said one purpose of life, and I've said this before, is love. Love is a big purpose of life. Somebody say, I knew it. I've been wanting to fall in love since. And yeah, I speak in my mind. But love is a big purpose of life. Uh, in fact, I say that receiving God's love is a huge purpose of life. Because the Bible says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so it means that everything else you do in life, and I'm already drifting from the message, but it's okay, I'll just continue. Everything else you do in life doesn't necessarily make sense if it will end up in you not coming to know Jesus. So receiving the love of God is a huge purpose of life. So I don't know what to do with my life, just receive God's love. Okay, but, but when we read Acts 1.8, it says, you will be witnesses to me First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And today we want to look at Jerusalem. Okay. Um, as I prepared for this, first was laid in my heart, John chapter 4. The woman at the well. And if you have read that story before, uh, we'll just start at verse 28. Verse 28, so we're talking about Jerusalem. Okay. You know, um, and, and the Bible says in verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Okay? Um, I, I, what is interesting, in verse 18, Jesus gives some background to this woman. It says, For, you, for thou hast had five husbands, 
And, and even now, we're born again and we know not to come. As I read that, someone's like, my goodness, you're judging her in your heart, right? Five husbands, and he whom thou, I brought my KJV, the one who you're with now is not your husband. So she's on number six. That's one um, experienced woman, you know. And she has a discussion with Jesus. And what I love about the aftermath of this discussion is, you know, uh, herself and Jesus are speaking. Jesus says, give me water. She's like, you know, how are we, how are we having this conversation? Uh, you know, uh, Jesus starts talking about, you know, this water that will make you never thirsty again. And she says, look, I perceive there's something about you. Um, and then, you know, he then talks about, you know, she says, okay, so, you know, a theological question, where should we worship God? And he says, neither here nor there. You know, he says, the time will come and, you know, those who, Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. It gets to a point where the scales fall off her eyes and she realizes this is a divine experience. This is a God experience. This is me meeting with God. This is, and the Bible says she drops her water pot, okay, and heads back into the city and begins to say to the men, come, see, I have, I have met a man. And I expect the first thing, you know, response is, you've met another man, you know. So what? So it's not as easy as, you know, just really, here. she says, I've met a man and they all rush to her. It's oh, fantastic. No. She essentially goes into a description of this supernatural experience that she's had. And, and I don't know um, if you, you know, if you have a, a friend, a girlfriend, who's, who then, you know, when she calls you and she's always meeting you, one, all of us tend to have maybe one or two of such, you know, uh, who have met a guy, and you're, the first thing in your mind is, so what's new, right? Because like, last week you said you had met Stimilade. Then this week you met Dickboy. And then this week, what I just said, Dickboy, his wife just looked around. Who met Dickboy? It's <laughs> part of the analogy. Stay focused, guys. Alright? And so she has to she has to put quite a bit of effort into this story. And you have that friend, and, and so you can imagine how the people treat her first statement. I have met him, and they're like, what's new? But she begins to explain to them. But this is not just any other man. In fact, he's not a man. I suspect he's the Messiah. And a whole city comes out. You read John chapter 4, a whole city comes out. For that lady, Samaria, as it were, is her Jerusalem. So, so when I say Jerusalem, where is my Jerusalem? I believe strongly Jerusalem represents the people who speak the same language with us. The place where we are familiar with. So, immediate family close friends and associates our immediate family and so our mandate it's very easy for us when we receive this mandate that we talk about to immediately think about how god has called us to people very far off right i believe that i'm going to go to new york for the work of the gospel and some holiday yeah i strongly believe it the might say it i believe it more right um, but, but today, I, I realize that our Jerusalem is so obvious. It's, it's the people who are around you. There was something about her experience 
uh, that compels her to break what I call almost like a protocol of shame. I tell you what, because this woman has gone to the well at a time when nobody else is there. So in, in those days, my understanding is you will go to the well as part of a social experience. But she's gone to the well when it's quiet, when there's nobody else there. Because you, she's avoiding people. But yet there is something so compelling about the experience she has with Jesus that she leaves even the reason why she came to the well. She leaves her emptiness behind and goes back to her family and her friends. So last week I think I said this, that Christians are meant to be, well, Christians are meant to be carriers of hope. It was during the week, the whole, you know, God dropped in my heart this whole concept of a company of hope. And that you must be deliberate not just to be in a company, but in a company of hope. You must be deliberate that the people around you are dispensing hope, are distilling hope. You're, you're having discussions that breed hope with people around you. Extremely important in the times we live in. Extremely important in the country that we are so divinely appointed to live in. That you must, you must live with people. You must have a company around you. And when you finish speaking with them, there is a glint in your eyes. There is a smile on your face. There is a, a bounce in your steps. And I, and I keep saying this. You know the people you discuss with. And when you finish, there's collective depression. Oh my goodness. This, ah, this MPC people have this. They've, oh my goodness. No, they finished us. They told us it was changed. Oh man, goodness. They say, but PDP is no better. I mean, oh my God. What of Abga? Terrible. So what of these new parties? Say, we're finished. We're finished. Should we leave the country? Our hair is worse in Cameroon. Oh my God. <laughs> so what should we do? I don't know. We are going to die. We're dead, in fact. And it's all sorts of things. Oh, it's the economy. Do, do you hear the exchange rate? The exchange rate. The exchange rate. Oh, there are no guys in Lagos. I'm telling you. No good guys in Lagos. What of you know that guy that was going out with our friend? Broke her heart to pieces. Not only did he break her heart, the next day he married Ifama. <sighs> men are terrible. Men are terrible. They're terrible. I confess. Amen. <laughs> but but it's that. But everyone needs. And this. So this is an aside. A company of hope. You must pray about it. I said. I was telling myself during the week that when, we, when, we, when Jesus gathers the 12 disciples, we think it was just because he, he wanted a bunch of people around him who believed, at least to some measure, in the same thing that he believed in. But Christians are meant to be the ones who say, here is some light in the midst of darkness. That it will not all spoil. Like Paul says to the guys on the ship, don't worry, the boat might be lost, but lives will not be lost. The woman heads back into town you know, calls an entire city, her entire Jerusalem, calls them out. I believe that we have a God divinely ordained position of strategy in the lives of those who are family and friends. I believe so. Uh, Paul speaking to Timothy, I think it's in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 1.5. He speaks about the faith that was once in your grandmother, I think Louis, and your mother Eunice, and then it says, now resides in you. And, I, and so I think there is something about our faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's even meant to go across generations. When uh, I think it's Paul and Silas are having a discussion with the jailer in Acts chapter 16, they essentially say to him, Look, this salvation is, is a you and your family package. They say, Believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16 31. He says, and you will be saved, you and your household. <laughs> so, there is something about the blood relationships that we have. Because God respects the blood. In fact, I think it was Kenneth Hagin a couple of years ago, and I was reading about prayer, I think it was. And he was talking about how when you, when, so when a wife, for example, prays for her husband, when you, a husband or father prays for the daughter, there is an element of authority that we do not necessarily you know, reckon with all the time, but it is there. So there are people who, your very first apartment in life, your mother's womb, who you shared with. I've got, I've got uh, four siblings. Uh, three of them were here last, last Sunday. And you know, I was the first tenant in the apartment, I was the first child. But these are guys who essentially I have lived with, or I've seen, you know, so when you know you've seen people from when they were like little, I have seen them, I've known them all my life. And so, all their life. So it means that I have a unique advantage when it comes to communicating with them. Luke chapter 16, there's a rich man, the rich man and Lazarus, the Bible says, you know, his life proceeds, he ends up in hell, and his heart goes out to his, he says to Father Abraham, he says, please, uh, would you please send to my father's house Lazarus, let him go and talk to them uh, and testify to them. He says, I have five brothers. I have five brothers. You know, I like Genesis chapter 3 or chapter 4 because, you know, God asks a question which I believe still re-echoes and resonates through generations. He says to Cain, where is your brother? He says, where is Abel, your brother? And, and Cain says to him, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Would you please ask the person next to you, where is your brother? Where is he? Let me ask the other one on the other side, where is your sister? Where, where is your sister? Where is your sister? And this is, this is important. So Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem is our mandate, our call to those who are related our closest relations and interestingly those who we almost immediately overlook when we were fasting and reading out of isaiah chapter 58 uh, some weeks back that line kept on coming back to me in verse 7 where he says i will not hide myself from my own flesh the latter part of verse 7 of isaiah 58 he says is it not a fast that i have desired to and he says that i will not hide myself from my own flesh. Because sometimes they are the ones who we immediately ignore. Well, then I come down there very soon. But we share the gospel with those whom we love. We call them our loved ones. Doesn't Minister Yemi uh, say to us that if you love me, you know how it goes. You will buy me a Ferrari. You know that song. In it. Just concentrate, concentrate. But more than just buying you a Ferrari, the truth is that those whom you love are those who deserve to hear the gospel the most. Someone said, what did he say about Minister Ferrari? It's like, that's not the one you should write. Sorry. 
Okay. My question this morning, why do we sometimes find it difficult to preach to friends, family, close friends? Why do we find it difficult? Why? Josh, why? Let me keep on calling. <laughs> he said, no, this is why they call. But, but seriously, why? I, I tell you, because number one, they know our former lives. Ah, I know that you are now singing soprano in the band. And that we can't tell who sang it better, you or better musical. We know that, but these guys know you, follow me. When you used to show home, come back home at 2 a.m. And first knock on your neighbor's door because you were just a bit out of it. And you had to be redirected home. <laughs> so they still know you, Josh. Where did you grow up? Huh? In the streets of Elisha. Before Jesus found you. <laughs> and, th and I'm serious. These guys, they know you. They know you. They, they know your former life. They know that you could lie competitively. You could, you could represent, if lying was a sport, you could represent Nigeria. Relax, guys. I'm coming to where you are. You're coming to where you are. They know your former life. In fact, not only do they know your former life, they still know your current struggles. Because they know that you go to church, but they know that once in a while, on Monday morning, or evening, when the traffic gets too much, that sometimes something just lights up. And then you begin to, there's a way you behave in traffic. But she says, she's saved. But, ah, even me, I'm not saved. And, and I'm coming where you. Because sometimes it's easier to tell a stranger that your life has changed. I mean, because the stranger does not require evidence. Just that I used where I used to be, my life has changed. Because those closest to us sometimes will require from us huge signs and evidence of that transformation. Because sometimes the persecution in Jerusalem is often very fierce. It's painful, it's real. I, I, I don't take away, I mean, I don't take lightly the fact that with our closest family, you know, uh, friends and all that, sometimes the people who have uncomfortable history with. Something that happened when you were 8, 11, 12, 21. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 to 6, the Bible says, they're talking about Jesus in his hometown. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus says to them, or said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And so I recognize that there's, there's that, there is that, you know, sometimes it's just that difficult. I mean, you. They went to the club with you. And this is important because I'm speaking to people who have then been given a mandate. And so put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan woman. 
they don't just describe her. Is we we are the ones who describe her as the Samaritan woman, right? Because that's how we read of her in scripture. But guess what they called her in Samaria? <laughs> don't you know Ini? Ini, and you that's Ini. And you know, as Africans, you know, we like exaggeration and motion. And then he's just praying in her mind, Pierre, please, don't spoil my market this Sunday morning. But, but you know, he said, don't you know, they said, don't you know that woman? Let's say her name was Mary. Mary, you don't know her. That woman has married five, she married Kendi, then she married his cousin later. Then she now broke up with him, married Felix. No, no, she, sorry, Felix was the fourth one. She married that guy from Asaba. Then when he lost all his money, she left. Do you know how they described her? If that woman could preach the gospel and turn an entire city. I sense that God is saying to someone, I don't know what history, what you think lies between you and family and close friends, what holds you back. But it's nothing compared to five husbands. Help me ask the person next to you, have you been married five times? If, if anybody next to you says yes, please let me know later. Please <laughs> But this is serious business because those who are related to us surely must be the ones who we're immediately concerned about. Let's go back to last week. Why is this a big deal? When you read John chapter 3, it's very clear. He says that, you know, uh, he that believes on him, verse 18, is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And I said last week, we don't preach condemnation. It's not our gospel. But we do not pretend that it is not a state of separation between God and his people. We don't pretend like everything is cool and fine. We don't, you know, because these are the people who you, who you dance with at the parties. These are the people who show up at your parties. They show up beside you. These are the people who you invite for big things. These are the people who you go for. Their way. This, these are the people who you bear the same surnames. And so to pretend like how they're going on with God is a lot of your business is a bit tough to understand. Help me ask the person next to you, where is your brother? Where is your brother? Where is your brother? Now whenever you watch a, a proper James Bond movie, it used to be, or one of those nice, uh, just before he goes off on the mission, he will have this, uh, he will have this uh, special agent who then uh, explains, you know, takes him into a, a room, I think, where they have all these new weapons, right? Um, and all this new gear. Oh, oh yeah, so, he, so what's it called? The Miladi says that, that the guy's name is Q. And he takes him into the room. So you're just showing off to that. <laughs> All right. But, the, but even in the, the new Black Panther movie, there's the, the sister, Ellen, the movie, because I know that one, the Miladi. <laughs> what her name is not relevant to this <laughs> And you will no longer sit in front of church. <laughs> Sweetheart, what's <laughs> Sorry? I 
hear Rita, hear Rita. But, but I'm just going to focus on my message. Hang on, hang on. So, so even, even, even then, even then, she takes him into the room and she begins to show him, you know, this is special, this, and you know, we show James Bond, this, this, this thing. It looks like a pen, right? Ah, but when you turn it upside down, you shake it three times, you point it up. It becomes a, a, like a flying umbrella. You just hold it and, and you know, and they show him the shoes. Oh, this is, oh don't, don't, no, no, James, don't wear them like that. You know, when you knock the shoes together, this comes out of it. So, so I just want to discuss what I believe are some of the toolkits that God gives people, gives us as regards Jerusalem. I, I need to mention Moses before this message ends. So if I don't do that, Josh, please remind me. It's important. One thing, first thing, comes to mind is that we need to understand the power of planting and watering. What does that mean? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Apostle Paul says that I planted, Apollos watered. He says, but God gave the increase. And so, because sometimes what happens is that we, we are worried about rejection. I don't mind if I see a stranger and say to him, look, I think Jesus loves it. The guy says, please, just shut up and leave me alone. That doesn't really hurt me. But my own brother, sometimes we're worried, like, I don't want to be rejected by those who are so... Sometimes we're like, you know, when I'm going to preach to this person, does it now look like I'm trying to say that I am better than they are? But that's not what it is. But Paul says that there is something called planting and there is something called watering. I, I've said to you guys before, anybody who remembers, that I got saved in Benin. I think I got saved in 1995, just after the Civil War. And what happened on the day I got saved? I was up at about 4, half 4, 4.30 in the morning or so, 5. I think I was trying to read, or I just come back. And there was no light, it was all black. And if you didn't school in Nigeria, I was wondering, how, how did you go to the university? All, that's, that's how it used to be sometimes, just, just relax, okay? All black, and I remember that I then had to do something called morning cry. And trust me, it was really morning cry, okay? And I remember this, and this is how I got saved. Someone literally shouting, you know, I just, <coughs> You know, just talking about us and God, me and God. And I, and I think, I just realized I had never made that decision before. So I knelt down there, accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. That same room. One day I have to go back to that room because that's room I got room I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I just got by the room. Sorry, I know. I need to focus. Uh, <laughs> um, and, 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 but guess what? That increase that showed up that day was not because it wasn't a long sermon it wasn't a big debate but over the years there was planting there was watering there was one mom's one of my mom's sisters who would you know take us to church once in a while there was a, a sister on my dad's side you know at the city who who came back from youth service born again and set up a bible club and I had to go to Bible club, even though she then made my brother the captain of the Bible club. Which I don't understand, but, but yes, thank you, I'm just going to stay back on message. But she made my brother. 
and captain, and a younger brother. But it's okay. People make mistakes. <laughs> but but that's not, but but she. This was but seeds were being sown and then being watered over the years. And so when we plant, we pray, and we actually preach. We pray, we preach. Jesus will say to his disciples, the harvest is ripe. He says, pray the Lord of the harvest, and he will send laborers in. And so we would pray, Father, would you cause laborers to be sent in? He will, Paul will pray in other places, pray for me that effectual doors of ministry are open. So we'll pray, Father, let doors of ministry be open in the life of my brother, in the life of my friend. We would water the seeds by living out in front of them the life of the gospel by loving them, trusting God to give the increase. And so we, we remain in love. We're not condescending. We're not obnoxious. We're not dismissive. And we refuse to get offended. So I plant. Apollos waters. God gives the increase. And sometimes you give a book. Sometimes you share a podcast. And I know that, you know, we, we live in an age where we want to respect people's spaces and who they are. And, you know, and so you, you're trying not to be uh, in your face religious. But the truth is, if you hear of any other good thing, you would share without restriction. I'll come back to this very quickly. The second thing for me, which is very powerful in this toolkit, is the power of invitation. The power of invitation. Very simply, we invite them to where planting and watering is happening. I read a scripture that helps to put this in context. John chapter 1, verses 40 to 46. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him and said, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. The power of inviting. So last week, uh, I felt a nudge in my heart and I put it on the, you know, to the leaders, I think. I said, oh, please, would you invite your siblings? I don't know why. And then on Saturday night, I realized that I hadn't invited my siblings to church. This was about 10 p.m. So I pick up the phone, call my sister, you know, you know, how are you? How are you? What, what are you doing tomorrow? Well, come to church. So okay. So I dropped the call sister too. You know, uh, where, where is this? Like past 10. I want you to come to church tomorrow. And I said, my brother's better. Let's, we cannot just meet up. Just no problem. And then I called my brother. I think I sent him a text. And they all showed up. And I was kind of surprised. You know, um, but I realized later that it's it's. They probably thought, well, our brother is 
the pastor of the church. Maybe they don't go in the church. Maybe he wants to come and support him. Maybe he has a special message from God to us. You know, but, what, but, but they showed up. And I was deeply honored. But I realized that it's harder to do that to people, even people who work for me, whose appraisals I have to do. Alex, come to church. Sorry, sir. I can't do that. I have my own church, sir. <laughs> but they listen to you. I remember years ago, uh, this young lady, and, and for reasons I won't mention her name, and I remember we'd gone to St. Secondary School. I remember inviting her to church, and she got saved. And then she literally dragged her two sisters with her, and they got saved. And so months later, I remember they invited their two brothers, these two guys, the brothers were, I don't know the Christian word to use, but, but the brothers were tough guys. We are, ah, no, no. We used to respect them. Even as Christians, we just respected them. But they both came to church. One program we had, you know, like I still remember the day, out of the place. And then they got saved. And I, I, it was just like, you know, one after the other, after the other. And this is not about growing a church. It's not, it's not that. It's not, it's not about whether your church becomes the biggest. That's not it. It's that lives are at stake. Simple. So we water, we plant, we invite. One last one, and, and then you know, I'll try and bring this home with Moses. It's what I call the power of a personal story. Because sometimes when we share the gospel with people, we, we go all theological. We try and explain to them about, you know, the five reigns of the kings of Babylon in the end times. We try and do deep stuff about eschatology. Or, you know, we try and tell them about the Antichrist. You know, stuff that even you do not really understand you saw on the internet and memorized. We tell them, we try and bring them spiritual stuff. You know, just stuff to explain to them that they are really condemned and that for once something good has happened to you. In John chapter 9, this gentleman who has been blind from birth, Jesus heals him. There's confusion because the, the, the rulers of the day are saying, but who healed you? What happened here? They call his parents, verse 23, who joined there. It says, therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. And so again, they called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing that I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I was blind, but now I see. And so sometimes people ask me, come share your God experience. Sometimes you don't realize how powerful it is. Because it allows you in seven or eight minutes, do your, this is who I used to be before. Follow me of Abiyakuta. Oh my goodness. 
they all they knew me. The bartenders knew me. The, everything. They, I was I was into all sorts. You know? But this is what happened when I met Jesus. And this is who I am now. I was blind, but now I see. This is Idris from Benin. I thought I was hot stuff in the university and beyond. But I fell down, and this is, you all know my story, okay? I, I was dealing with depression, I was dealing with addictions. I did not know or think or believe that my life would amount unto anything. I met Jesus, accepted into the family of God, and experienced his love. I was blind, but now I see the power of a personal story. It's interesting how many people are undercover with God. Because you, you kind of think that you can't share or shouldn't share your story until you're all perfect. You're like, I know, because the Bible says we have all been transformed in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 into that same image. So there's a work of transformation. So he said, let me deal with this. Ah, no. Oh, Pierre, you don't understand. I, I, I ah, Pierre, you don't. Pierre, I want them to first forget me small. Let them forget. But I was blind, and now I see. So the power of a personal story, the power of an invitation, the power of planting and watering. The Bible says the woman left her empty pot before Jesus. And went back into the city, into her Jerusalem, where all they knew about her was this woman has had five husbands. She must have been pretty. She had five husbands. And then to compound it, Jesus says, the one you are living with now, they call it shacking up, right? I began. <laughs> Why are you looking back? <laughs> Let me tell you, and I'm going to put this together, and we'll pray. I feel very strongly that if you don't mind, we should pray about one person who is in our Jerusalem today. Because we'll I was preparing for this, you know, begins impressed in my heart about Moses. And I'm like, what does Moses have to do with Jerusalem? And, you know, I realized the more I prepared, it says, look, Moses was on self-imposed exile from home. And I don't know if there's a Moses here, someone who is disengaged from family. And God shows up with Moses the very same way he's shown up to Demilade and to Caleb and to Anu. And he says, take this message of deliverance back to Israel, back to people in Egypt. I don't know who is hidden in this crowd with all, you know, no lights. You are in exile where you are. You like it because nobody knows your name. You don't know. It's fine. You, but God is saying to you, Moses, and you're saying, look, because how do I go back to a people who once rejected me? How do I go back to a place where I failed before? How do I rebuild a bridge? If I have lost my temper in that house over and over and over and over again. P.I., they're not going to listen to me. They know that I, I got pregnant. 
they know that I got pregnant when I was 16. How do you, how does God expect me to then share the gospel? They know I failed morally. They know, but I, that I did not measure up. How do I go back? How does Moses go to preach where his weaknesses are most obvious? Because we're then concerned about our reputation, our weakness, fear of rejection. And Moses is having this conversation with God. God is having none of it. Exodus chapter 4, last scripture. Exodus 4, 10 to 13. Then Moses said to the Lord, he's had a series of discussions with God. But he says to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And so the Lord said to him, and I believe same God says to someone here today about your Jerusalem. He says, who has made man's mouth? Or who has made the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I. Now therefore, go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Moses then says, Look, but he said, Oh Lord, please send by the hand of whoever else you may send. He says, God, don't send me. He says, If you were trying to send me to people in Judea, which we'll look at next week, and if you can read Acts chapter 26 in advance of next week, that's fine. But he says, I don't mind going to Judea. They don't know me. In Galatians chapter 1, I think Paul begins to say, He says, The people in Judea really didn't know us. They don't really know me in Judea. They're familiar, but they don't really know me. So it says, God, can we delegate this business about taking the gospel to our family and closest friend to somebody else? You can send somebody else. But I, I, I just keep on hearing God that question. Where is your brother? Where is your brother? Where is your brother? Where is your brother? And someone, what you would find is just an opportunity to invite them. You don't even have to invite them here. You can invite them here, you should, if you can, but you don't have to. You can invite them anywhere else. You can water. You can express love. You can open up a conversation. There's a cousin of yours, but everybody's labeled as the black sheep of the family. And you could just share the gospel with them or the power of your personal story. Because your mandate is bigger than the political mandate. You have been called, along with the body of Christ, to preach Jesus. Paul says, when I came to you, I sought to know nothing else amongst you but Christ and him crucified. I strongly believe that there is a level of quality of fulfillment that a Christian finds as they dedicate their hearts to preaching Jesus. Someone says, but Pierre, I'm not that type of Christian. He says, Pia, you don't understand. I'm, I just really got back. I really just got back. And where I'm coming from, we don't, we don't do all this aggressive, you know, preaching something. No, we all sit on the train, put our earphones on, we mind our business. But I believe that this mission that the church is called to is not one that we can we didn't assign ourselves to it. Like, like, 
last week you said, and I'm done. Last week I said how we, we can't go into an exam hall and write the questions for ourselves. There's a lot going on in church around trying to reach people's N70 to speak about an announcement. But I just hope someone would consider heeding to God's call in the season and actually beyond. Just saying, Lord, there's Jerusalem, my Jerusalem, my Jerusalem, but that none, that none will be lost. That scripture, I think, in John 17 has been resonating in my heart. For weeks about life point and they've been saying father jesus says the ones you've given me i have lost none of them and the confession of my heart as we intercede for the church but it's also about my family that none of my siblings none of my parents no cousins no close your, your closest friends the one that even stick closer than a brother I think I've said what God wants me to say to you. I think so. So all we'll do in prayer, if you don't mind, uh, and it doesn't matter where you are, multimedia booths, cameraman, keyboardists, playing jazz songs, something like that. I see. But it's just to look for one person. And if nobody comes to mind immediately, well, that, that's fine. But to pray about your Jerusalem. I don't know who it is in your Jerusalem that needs to get saved, needs to come to God, could we please pray for your Jerusalem? How do we pray? It says that God will send laborers into the harvest. How do we pray? Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of them, but believe not. He says, though, lest they would see the light of God. So their eyes, there's something about darkness that covers their eyes. So would you declare in the name of the Lord Jesus, but that darkness is lifted. It says light has come and darkness cannot comprehend it. It's good to pray in the spirit a bit. So you can pray in the spirit a minute or two. And then as God begins to give you offer, because some of you, you immediately want to pray for one person, but God is saying, hold on a minute. What of your cousin, Kife? What of that particular person? What of Philip? You know, so just pray in the spirit. Let's pray in the spirit, church. Just pray in the spirit, if you don't mind.